0: Hi, I'm Carmen Laburge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge.
1: Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen Laburge on Faith Radio.
0: It's Friday. What are your Memorial Day weekend plans? All right. I know it's going to be an unusual one, but, uh, but let us still recognize and honor those who served us well and certainly those who gave their lives in service of our great nation. All right. So uh, I know that um, we have a veteran Cemetery, National Veterans Cemetery near where we live and all of the flags are out on every grave. I want to say thank you to those who have taken the time to um, to honor the fallen in those ways uh, and just encourage you, like, that's a place that you could get out and take a walk this weekend. You could find a Veterans uh, Cemetery across the country. They're open, and uh, they're beautiful, and it's a, an honorable way to uh, to spend some time this Memorial Day weekend. All right, one big international headline today that I certainly don't want us to miss. We will follow up on this next week. Uh, This will be an unfolding story. I want you to be aware of it. China is planning to impose new national security legislation today on Hong Kong. Uh, We expect this to ignite fresh pro-democracy protests, and we expect China's response to those protests to be quick uh, and very likely violent. So, the proposal appears to be very far reaching uh banning here's the list: sedition, treason, secession, and protest. There you go uh and so you can uh, you can pretty much read about it in uh, in all of the major news outlets this morning. President Trump said of what everyone anticipates to be a coming crackdown. Well, if it happens, we'll address the issue very strongly. Hong Kong stocks have plunged in response to China's announcement. You will uh, you will remember that we have been watching pro-democracy protests following them in, in Hong Kong now for some time. Pro-democracy uh, legislators, uh, Dennis Kwok in particular, told reporters, uh, this is the end of Hong Kong. This is the end of one country, two systems. Make no mistake about it. The BBC is reporting <clears throat> through their um, through their correspondent who is in Hong Kong. Uh, quote as an as an indication of just how worried Beijing authorities are. Well, every time we talk about this, we're they've pulled the plug on our feed. Suffice it to say, right now screens have gone black across China. So let us be praying today um, for this meeting that is taking place in China, uh, and let us be. Praying that indeed, what we anticipate now, based on these headlines does not uh, does not ultimately come to pass um, because we have talked about this in the lead up that if and when Beijing decides to uh, like literally drop the hammer on pro democracy protesters in Hong Kong, um, the world does not have a plan of how to intervene um, and there'll be blood in the streets there's no There is no easy way. Um, to say that. So let us be praying today for God's intervention, for the protection um, of the people of Hong Kong, and for for freedom, for freedom to ring. That would be my heart's desire. I hope it's yours as well. All right. Uh, first up this morning, I've got a conversation with Matthew Hawkins. We're going to talk about uh, the city of New York and its targeting of Jewish yeshivas. We'll, we'll also talk about other headlines related to religious liberty. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Yeah. Welcoming back Matthew Hawkins, you can follow him at MT Hawk on Twitter. Welcome back, sir.
2: Good morning Carmen. Good to be here. Good
0: morning. Good morning. Um so you know this is one of those mornings where I wake up and I say to myself, oh, I wish I had um suggested to Matt that we talk about planned parenthood. Um uh-huh. because there are all these planned parenthood headlines today, but it's not what I uh proposed to you. So um I won't bring it up. Thank you. Cuz <laughs> I wouldn't be prepared on that one. <laughs> I know. I know. I'd but be so it. um no, I'm just gonna say let's um let's watch that story as it unfolds and let's plan to talk about it um in the coming weeks because I just good. think there's just no question it's gonna be a um sure a, an unfolding conversation. Not,
2: well, and they're not going
0: away anytime soon. Well, so. yeah, there you go. That story's not going <laughs> away. Okay, hopefully this story is going away. Um, Bill De Blasio uh, is, I what's going on? Like, how can you? How oh, could goodness. you be so obtuse to continue to target well. people of faith? With 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 just such what seems to just be such open discrimination, when you're allowing other things and other groups of people to gather, and you're just specifically not allowing these people to gather, tell us uh, tell us what's going on there.
2: Well, goodness. So we all know understand that uh, New York City and has been. Taking the brunt of uh, the coronavirus um, infections over the last uh, couple months. And uh, it's one of those hot spots on the coast that got hit early. And uh, there's a, you know, obviously New York City with uh, public transportation and close proximity. And uh, it's just ripe for um, the virus to spread. And so to be fair, um, it's a city that's been hit really hard. Um, and I was inter- listening to, uh, of all, of all things yesterday, uh, interview with Alec Baldwin, uh, on his podcast, um, Here's the thing. And uh, he was interviewing some uh, private sector um, leaders in, in the New York City community and uh, just talked about the scope of, of economic uh, shifts and changes that they're going to have to wrestle with. It's, it boggles the mind. Uh, you have to go like back like 40 years to, uh, to like the 70s to, for, to find a close comparison about what, what the, the virus is doing at an economic level. Um, And, uh, you know, you have in New York City uh, a Hasidic Jewish community uh, that we're talking about. I think we've maybe uh, talked about it in the past. Um, And uh, they're, uh, I think, uh, basically ultra-Orthodox is a way to describe them. And uh, they've been going about their religious practices um, uh, more or less unlike uh, there's anything else going on. And, uh, it's troubling and it puts conflict within, um, between the government and a, a, a Jewish community, a Jewish community. Um, this is complex, Carmen. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. It's difficult. Uh, some people would say it's a spicy meatball <laughs> as far as conflicts go. I, you know me, I'm a religious liberty advocate. My disposition is generally, uh, to side with the religious actors and, and communities, um, you do make an interesting point. The, some of the question is are they being uh, targeted or picked on differently than other groups, right? If, so if, if bans on gathering uh, is not being equally applied, that's a big problem. But if it's being equally applied, um, you know. The, uh, and you know, Jewish, religious groups uh, don't have a whole lot to fall back on, uh, legally speaking. Um, you know, one of the – we think about uh, – there's a federal law called Religious Freedom Restoration Act called RIFRA, And there are three tests basically that you apply in a conflict between the re- uh, religious group and, a, and the state government. Uh, the question is, number one, is there a st- substantial burden on – Religious actors, Um, and clearly, I think not gathering uh, as Christians and Jews and others that would be a substantial burden. Number two test: Is there a compelling government interest? Well, we would say, of course, in in the scope of a global public health crisis, there's a compelling government interest to help stop the virus from spreading. Um, and then the third the third test is, is, there, is the burden applied with the least restrictive means? Basically is the government finding the least restrictive way about going, uh, about their um, uh, restricting or burdening uh, the religion. And uh, I got to tell you, Karma, I'm torn on this one. I have a doctor friend in, uh, in New York City who's in the thick of this stuff. Uh, he's Jewish himself. Uh, he's not. He's not Hasidic, um, but he he explains that uh, this community there is uh, is troubles him. Um, And uh, they actually he believes it's contributing to a higher rate of infection uh, among among the Jewish community, the the Jewish community there. Um, But to underscore our point from a few weeks ago, this is one of those reasons why both religious communities and uh, state and governments need to have what I think you might have titled religious relational capital. Uh, And there needs to be really relationships outside of crises um, between religious actors and religious organizations and uh, govern- government folks so they can work together to try to uh, come to a consensus on least restrictive means while still affirming and enabling uh, the right to religious freedom. So that's my that's my no, that's really helpful. <laughs> so um Terry.
0: Yeah, well, I'm going to give uh, a couple of sentences uh, here as you and I go to a quick break, just updating people on where things are at in other places, sort of related to this similar topic. So in, uh, in Minnesota, the Mall of America can reopen, but churches cannot. <clears throat> that seems confusing to people. Um, and, uh, and then yes. we have uh, the Trump administration saying yesterday, actually the president himself saying yesterday, the CDC will issue new guidance for the reopening of churches across America Um, That is related to the fact that the CDC's guidance was um, delayed after there was a disagreement, I think, between the White House and the CDC. So we're going to be watching today for that CDC guidance for the reopening of churches. It provokes the ongoing conversation um, about the relationship between the church and the state. We certainly want to continue praying for churches across the country that are uh, meeting this weekend, particularly those that are meeting in drive-in church services that their states have um, have raised concern about, and in particular, I have the 40-member—this is the one in my little uh, headline in heart this morning—Central Baptist Church in upstate New York, which has been uh, holding drive-in services attended by uh, 23 people in 18 separate vehicles, so there's no— right. um, you know, no, yes. uh, and yet they have been uh, issued a cease and desist order, and they have uh, their pastor has been fined a thousand dollars. He's only got, you know, yeah. what well, he's got, he's he's Those got like
2: two,
0: two dozen members, right? Okay, and it's really rural. Yeah. I mean, the pictures are pretty extraordinary. So anyway, we want to be praying yeah. for Samson Ryman and others like him across the country. We want to be praying for uh, our fellow Christians at the Central Baptist Church in Upstate New York. We want to be praying for everybody that's trying to make very difficult decisions right now about their own personal health. Uh, about the Mm -hmm. worship of God and, you know, about the respect for the authorities over us. So Matt Hawkins and I will continue this conversation in just a moment. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Matthew Hawkins. He's a public theologian, you can follow him on Twitter at M.T. Hawk. He has an excellent podcast. Um, remind us uh, the name of the podcast, where to find it, and what you talked about this week.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, the yeah. g- name of the podcast is Crossing Fades. Uh, you can be find it at Crossing Fades plural. Crossingphase com, or just about anywhere you listen to podcasts, it's available there. And this week, in particular, we talked about we we did uh, headlines, uh, which we don't always do, but we uh, just kind of skipped across the the rock across uh, some religious headlines, not unlike you do here. And we talked about uh, kind of intra Christian fighting between Christian realists and Christian pragmatists on the subject of Trump and religion. And uh, we talked about how religious folks are responding to the coronavirus pandemic. You know, is it an act of God? And that, those kinds of questions. And who's at fault? And uh, that you can find most recently on Crossing Faith.
0: Yeah. So thank you so much for um, for doing that and for posting it. It helps us to, helps us to yeah. overhear conversations between people of different faiths, um, because like we're all trying to figure out how to do that in real life. And so the fact that yeah. you're doing that uh, each and every week in, um, in such a, a joyful, intelligent, um, honest way is I think is helpful for all of us all right I have two different thank you very um, much
2: for for, for context yeah. for people for context for people who don't know it's a it's a it's a podcast that I co-host with my, my Muslim friend and so uh, we have an evangelical Christian and a, and a Muslim who are talking religion and politics which we don't think anyone else is doing on a regular basis and so uh, just like you said it's that's the kind of conversation we want to inspire—we're uh, friends. We want to talk about uh, complex, uh, uh, contentious issues, but uh, in the spirit of Rafi, the late Ravi Zacharias, frankly, um, we we want to be uh, disagree. We want to uh, be able to disagree, uh, but not be disagreeable. And so uh, that that's part of what inspires Crossing
0: Faith. It's excellent. All right, so Crossing Faiths. That's plural, dot com. Um you guys should check that out. All right, I have two different um uh, lines of conversation that I'd like to have with you. One is the Department of sure. Labor uh is yep. it has issued new guidance strengthening religious liberty protections for faith-based organizations partnering with the government. I think that this is uh this is a part of this is evidence of um why evangelical Christians across the country, particularly white evangelicals, see the president as uh, fighting for their beliefs. I think that um, his statement yesterday uh, related to his desire to see churches reopened because he views them as essential um, is, you know, it, again, yeah. we're um, so the, that's the conversation that I want to have. And then the other conversation I want to have is um, you have reminded me that this weekend is the second anniversary of you having survived a heart attack and you're a really young person. So I think that yeah. um, let's, let's have that conversation uh first,
2: sure thing, okay, you have that first <clears throat> yeah, uh, so two oops, lost my headphones uh so two years ago, uh heading into the memorial day weekend, uh I was having some interesting symptoms uh, symptoms that were uh not this not the standard issue uh hey, you're having a heart attack kinds of symptoms but they were enough to uh, give me and my wife some concern and uh, the short of it is um, on a Thursday morning I was walking to the bus uh, during my normal DC commute and about halfway there I felt a pressure dead center in my chest and uh, a pressure that I felt the day before uh, during while I was walking. Uh, again, something I'd done for eight years up in DC, and uh, uh, I felt it before, but it was kind of a more broad and kind of general pressure in my chest, um, and we had gotten an a EKG the night before, everything looked okay, um, not emergent, and then uh, Thursday morning, I thought maybe I should not get on DC public transportation right now. and Went home to rest, and uh, my wife, who is a nurse practitioner, uh, listened to my heart rate, and she didn't exactly know what was going on, but she heard enough to say, uh, we're going to the ER. And uh, sure enough, I went to the ER, um, uh, and the ER doc uh, thought I might have had uh, a reflux uh, because I don't present with the typical profile of uh, someone who's having a heart attack. I was not overweight, not a smoker. Um, and
0: well, uh, and you're a child. <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> I am now I'm now 42. Um, yeah. But at the time mm-hmm. I was 40 uh, and I do have a baby face. Uh, so some people say <laughs> I, I'm younger looking. Some pe- people think I'm in my 30s. And so uh, those factors combined to be like, uh, you're probably not having a heart attack. Well, the truth of it was I got a blood test uh, in the ER, thankfully. And I was and uh so I soon had a, a stent dropped in my, uh, uh, lower, lower anterior and, uh, and, uh, it was about a 95, 99% blockage. Uh, basically huh. the theory is, uh, bad genetics plus stress. And, uh, so probably I built up a, uh, a uh, blockage, uh, probably 20-30% blockage over my 20s and 30s uh, due to bad genetics, and then stress and illness in the previous year uh, had destabilized that plaque and, and collapsed like a cave. And so I'm exceedingly grateful to be here uh, today, but Memorial Day weekend is uh, uh, a stark reminder uh, for me about our uh, our mortality and uh, so, I'm, I'm grateful to be here and uh, grateful to be chatting with you. Um, what's what's kind of odd about the situation, you remember our friend Karen Swallow-Prior. Uh, mm-hmm. The day before my heart attack was when she uh, was hit by a bus as a pedestrian in Nashville. Uh, so it was kind of a crazy week, uh, in our little evangelical subculture. Uh, I was, I was reading, you know, following her stuff on social media and, uh, thinking my, my situation wasn't all that bad, relatively speaking. Um, but, uh, grateful for, uh, the, you know, God's provision for me. Uh, the, the fact that I I married a nurse practitioner clearly saved my life. So, uh, grateful Mm -hmm. to my wife for being sensitive and making sure I got to got to the hospital. So anyway, that's my short little story.
0: All right. And with that, we're going to have to um, let the Department of Labor's new uh, guidance, strengthening religious liberty protections. Um, well, the the guidance is not new. The right. um, the the sort of uh, public understanding of it and application to things maybe is new. So yeah, the maybe we're... in the
2: context of labor. Uh, yeah. Is, and is... so it's
0: that that's that conversation is not going away either. So we'll just revisit Definitely it at a future date. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> All right. Hey, Matt Hawkins, thank you so much. We're grateful for your life. Um, and your health. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you, Carmen. You too. All right. Friends, we'll be right back. Okay. In in the, what do Carmen and Paul talk about during um, during the break? Really, really not important <laughs> stuff, but it is kind of no, cool. It's totally fun and it's totally cool. And we're talking about it. So Paul just informed me, by the way, he did the math on this. Uh, Memorial Day... I may
2: have not carried the one, though, so you can... Yeah. I,
0: know, I know. It's, it's, a, it's a challenge. <laughs> Memorial Day is the earliest it could possibly be this year.
2: On the calendar, yes.
0: And Labor Day is as late as it could possibly be on the calendar. Am I right on that, Paul? That is correct. Which, seventh, means we, yep. which means we have the longest possible summer. 107 days. Longest possible summer this year. Yeah, that's kind of fun. All right, so I feel like we we need an outreach to our friends in Sioux Falls at Faith 107.5. It's our only 107 signal on the Faith Radio Network, and so if you're listening on Faith uh, 107.5 in Sioux Falls, this is your summer. We're gonna come. <laughs> we're gonna come up with something. I mean, there's 107 days of summer. That's gotta like it could never be any longer than that. Like it, that's it. It's it's ma- It's it's maxed, maxed out. out. This is gonna yep. be the maxed out summer. All right. I don't know what we're doing with that yet, but um, there's a little fun summer factoid for you as you enter into Memorial Day weekend. What are you going to do with the longest summer possible? And you're going to say to yourself, well, it's the longest summer possible, but it's like COVID-19 summer. No, no. It's the summer of 2020. Let's let's move forward uh, out of darkness into light. Let's be people who claim the reality that these are the days in which God has ordained for us to live. And so let's make the most of every opportunity to advance the gospel always and in all ways. So that'll be my encouragement. All right. Next up, I've got Chris Martin from Lifeway Social. He and I are going to talk about the difference between screen time and social media. And then we're going to talk about something that, frankly, is plaguing us all, um, and that is Zoom fatigue. So... um uh, my sister spent time yesterday and the day before in a three-hour, each day she had this three-hour Zoom meeting, and then uh, each evening she had another uh, set of Zoom meetings, and I got to tell you, she's just like, by the end of uh, of the evening yesterday, she was like, I'm just, like, I have to, like, I feel like I got to go to bed, like right after dinner, and I said, you're suffering from Zoom fatigue. She's like, what is that? So there you go. Zoom fatigue, up next with Chris Martin. If you've seen an unexplainable or drastic
2: change in your teen's behavior, take a closer look. It may be far more serious than those turbulent teen years. Hi I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Teens today are experimenting with drugs in a variety of ways. You may not know it, but the intoxicating substance may be found in your kitchen drawer, medicine cabinet, or garage. There are literally thousands of ways to get high that don't seem as sinister as the well-known illegal drugs, but are potentially more dangerous. Keep your eyes open for any clues that your child is experimenting with harmful substances. No matter whether they're
1: using household items or harder drugs, take
2: action. Mark Gregston
0: has more helpful resources for you at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. chris martin from lifeway social hey chris welcome back
1: hey thanks for having me all
0: right i want to address um a, a rumor first oh, that's why scary okay. to hear. the rumor is that there's a podcast that we haven't heard since august that might be returning it's called social <laughs> cues can you either verify or dispense with this rumor
1: uh, it It's true. So uh, yeah, so I used to host a podcast for a very brief period, like last summer. I think we started it like last June. And a few friends and I who work in social media generally uh, had an idea of starting a social media podcast, both to sort of like look at social media trends and to uh, like answer questions. We often are asked about social media strategy. So it's kind of like a... Fun. Hey, we saw this thing trending or happening. Let's talk about it. And also kind of a hard like, here's what good social media strategy looks like uh, from our experience. So it's a little bit of both. And we haven't done it since August. We dropped off primarily because of me. I was the I was in charge of editing it and just could not keep up with editing it. But now I think we're at a spot where we can uh, manage to do it again. So we're uh, we're starting the engine back up, getting the thing running. So.
0: All right. So that's fun. So we're going to look next week for uh the first episode of social cues back no i don't know back yeah. from yeah resurrected the resurrected yeah, from, version yeah. of social cues that's fun
1: exactly okay yeah it should it should be out next tuesday i think hopefully so
0: fantastic all right so um teens i want to talk about teenagers i have some um and i know many talk with us and you work with them in ministry talk with us um about screen time and talk with us about social media
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, I lead the student ministry at my church. um, And so I interact with students a lot, obviously not face to face a whole lot right now, more over Zoom. And we'll talk, I think we're going to talk about Zoom fatigue in a few minutes. And that's a whole other issue. But um, I interact with students a lot. I love teenagers. I love teenagers for so many reasons. Um, uh, Because I was one in the not too distant past. uh, And I, um, you know, I, I grew up in a world Similar to what today's teenagers are growing up in, but the very, very early stages of the world today's teenagers are growing up and they have it, in my opinion, much harder than even I did growing up in terms of social media and screen time and things like that. So a lot of people, parents especially, of which I now count myself one, not of a teenager, but a parent generally – a lot of folks are really caught up in the in the idea of screen time and the negative effects of screen time on kids, teenagers, or or whomever. And I think, um, you know, I'm not I'm not a researcher myself. I, I'm not uh, a psychologist, uh, so I, I'm not here to say screen time isn't bad. Don't hear that. Um, don't hear that as the message this morning from me. But there's there's some new research from folks like Jonathan Haidt and Gene Twenge who are both social psychologists. Very brilliant uh, in their own right about variety of topics, but they've done some research on screen time versus social media because sometimes I, I think what they have proposed and what I have noticed as well is we sometimes attribute negative effects, negative consequences that teenagers are facing in their lives to screen time generally. When we should maybe be attributing it to more social media specifically now those things are often Overlapping right because so much of a teenager's screen time is likely spent on social media Um, however it's important for us, I think, to identify that social media is probably more the culprit than screen time itself. And so there's there's a good bit of data to suggest that uh, social media disproportionately, rather than screen time, has a negative effect on the mental health of teens. And I think we've maybe talked about this on here before, I can't remember, uh, but especially on teenage girls rather than teenage boys, which is a really fascinating phenomenon, I think.
0: You know, it is. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, and I think essential for us um, to consider. Um, so 20 years ago, John Piper stood um, on a stage uh, in front of thousands of teenagers and young adults in a place called Shelby Farms. And he delivered a message um, about having one life and not wasting it. Um, lots of folks have been, you know, commenting on that, that their, you know, their life was changed because we're now talking about people who are uh, you know, largely in their late 30s and early 40s, you know, kind of prime of life and prime of ministry, and talking about how when they were teenagers and uh, and college students, that was that was a pivot point for them. Um, that was a point of reconsideration of things that mattered and and why their life mattered and how they might apply the full force of their life to the advancement of the gospel and what that might look like. Um, did you ever have that kind of like pivot point as a young person? Because I think that the provocation to, to to want to work with young people and inspire and provoke them is often stimulated by a similar experience in our own lives.
1: Yeah, I did. Um, I actually, I tweeted this week that uh, that John Piper's passion one day message of don't waste your life uh, caused one of those pivot points in my life. It didn't, It uh, I was only... Uh, nine when he delivered that message <laughs> in 2000. So I, I obviously I wasn't there. I didn't I didn't hear it at the time. But I in college, my freshman year of college, when I was still a teenager, read the book "Don't Waste Your Life," which I believe is uh, was ultimately from from that talk. I, the the talk I mm-hmm. think preceded the book. Um, and so I read "Don't Waste Your Life" my freshman year of college. It was my first interaction with anything Piper had written. I had never really heard of him before, but it was recommended to me as a helpful book for, you know, a freshman in college. And I was wrestling with uh, not, you know, no longer in high school, which is how we often associate teenagers, but I was still a teenager in my freshman year of college, my spring of my freshman year of college. And I had I read Don't Waste Your Life and at the time I was pursuing a degree in English education to learn how to be a high school English teacher and um, and I was really excited about it. There's nothing wrong with pursuing that and it was, it was really great and I was hoping to, to kind of do ministry on the side while teaching in high school, uh, teaching students how to read and write. And so – I read that book, and there's a line in that book where, uh, or, or a paragraph where a man comes up to Pastor John Piper at church, I believe, or I think it was at his church, and he said, "Pastor John, I I I'm in this job. I forget what he said. He was, you know, I'm a plumber, but I really feel like the Lord's calling me to ministry. Um, would it be unwise for me to leave my really, you know, great job as a plumber that my family relies on?" Uh, and, and pursue a call to ministry that may not provide, you know, a a very well-paying job right out of the gate and might require me to pay to go to school. Would it be wise for me to pursue this call when it could jeopardize a really solid sort of financial foundation I've built for my family? And John Piper said it would be unwise for you to not pursue that call. Despite what it may cost you and at the time I was really wrestling with a call to ministry and really pushing back against The Lord and friends and mentors who were saying that they thought I was called to ministry of some kind and I was like No, I don't think so. I think I just want to teach and that really opened my eyes to the fact that I was just afraid Uh, I was afraid I had the same fears the guy who talked to Pastor John years ago before that book was written. That um, you know, if I went into ministry, I wouldn't be able to pay or, or pay for stuff or feed my family or things like that. Uh, and ultimately, the book "Don't Waste Your Life" helped me face my fear of the Lord calling me to ministry and, and what implications that may have.
0: Thanks for sharing that. I um, I always think that it helps others to hear our stories and. Sort of what what were the um, the stepping stones that God placed along the way, um, where our sort of faith footfalls fell, um, that that shaped then um, the path that we walked, that led to where we are now. And so, thank you, um, Chris, for for sharing that. Chris Martin and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We are going to talk about Zoom fatigue, and we're going to talk about moving ministries online. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. When we Continuing my conversation with Chris Martin from LifeWay Social. Um, Chris, let's talk about Zoom fatigue. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of Zoom meetings these days at all hours of the day and night. Um, Part of the challenge that we are facing as a family uh, is like, okay, we have to uh, manage everybody's Zoom schedules because it puts such a burden on our Wi-Fi that we can't actually all do it effectively, certainly not simultaneously. Um but then, if you do it back to back to back to back, you never actually see your family because they are on zoom calls with someone else, and then when we get off, we're just exhausted
1: yeah, it's um you know i love i sh- i need to say from the start before we kind of i know, love zoom ra- it, well we, <laughs> yeah. we we before before we rag on zoom for a bit and the kind of like the state of, of where we're at, I need to say that I love working from home especially we did we have a newborn daughter like i don't have a an hour long commute to Nashville every day largely like one of the only blessings of of this whole situation for me has been the ability to work remotely, um, which I get to do typically you know when life is normal or one, once or twice a week anyway, but it really has been a blessing to to be able to work from home a lot but um, I have definitely felt Zoom fatigue. Um, I mean, Zoom is a great tool. It's so fun. Like, we had been using Zoom for our work at Lifeway for gosh, three or four years. And so it's been really interesting and cool to see like everybody else. It kind of became the dominant video platform and which for good reason, because it's very reliable in terms of service. But but yeah, the there are so many pain points in terms of, you know, like families using it for multiple things and strains on Wi-Fi. And I think I have felt Zoom fatigue. I've honestly felt it more regarding uh, like church activity than even work activity. So because it was already kind of baked into our work and how we were doing work at Lifeway a lot, you know, just I just went from doing Zoom meetings two days a week to five days a week. And it's it is more tiring. You know, you're it's a lot more straining to try to be reading people's faces and body language via video rather than in person. And you can kind of tend to go. Can I just go ahead and confess
0: something? People don't need to try to read me. I am multitasking.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. And don't don't even ask
0: yourself. Don't even ask yourself. Is she multitasking? The answer is yes.
1: Yeah. And I think I think. People are tempted to do that in normal meetings, but it's a little bit harder, right? The, the social the, – it's a bit more of a social faux pas to be like answering email in an in-person meeting than it is via <laughs> a Zoom meeting because people just assume each other doing it via a Zoom meeting. But like I've felt Zoom fatigue big time in leading our youth group via Zoom and and doing church via Zoom because our uh, well, the way our church is doing I think is great. I, I, I would not do it any other way. Like I think the decisions I've made have been fantastic. But it's like it is so – draining for me on, at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning to come into my home office, boot up my computer, and pull up another Zoom meeting for church. It feels like I'm getting ready for a work meeting, but I'm, but I'm going to church. And so I think I have felt Zoom fatigue more in trying to have spiritual, real-life discussions with the students in our youth group and our community group while we're watching a sermon together on Sunday morning than I even have for work stuff.
0: So part of my Zoom fatigue um, is, it, uh, I'm, I'm looking for words, it, there's there's just all this social pressure to not miss one. And right. um, I got to tell you, I have to miss some of them, um, particularly for those of you who think that nine o'clock at night is a good time for a Zoom call to catch up with one another. I'm in bed because I got to get up at four to put this together. So... Right. Um, so I just, there's this, all this social pressure where before I would have never even questioned whether or not I was going to a meeting at eight or nine o'clock at night across town for my church. I just, it wouldn't happen. It absolutely wouldn't happen. Um, yeah. but now, you know, people want to you meet at eight or nine o'clock do, right? at night like, what, and they're like, you know, "We don't like have anything else, else do. Do you have to, to do. do you You're home. Do. Yeah. I mean, you know, pop on the call. I'm like, oh, so it, that's hard. That's hard. And there are people that I love and there are people that I want to gather with. And so it's, it's just hard.
1: Yeah, I think it's, I think, you know, there was an understanding when we first started into this whole thing, particularly when it comes to like the church and trying to build community when you can't be together. I think there was a feeling that like, well, you know, if meeting together on a scale of one to five, if meeting together in person is a five, well, Zoom's not great, but it's a three, like it's better than nothing. And, and I think that was a a legitimate thought, you know, it's like, man, it's, it's, it's not ideal, but we still get to meet together. We still get to hear the word. We still get to encourage each other. But, man, I'm feeling more like Zoom is a one out of five more than a three out of five at this point just because it's it feels like – and part of this is probably personality and intro, Some Some people may just be like, yeah, man, I'll take anything as long as I get to talk to people. I don't care. But for me – it just feels sometimes so forced and so like, how long are we going to linger on this zoom call after church is over? <laughs> you know what I mean like it, it can mm-hmm. feel very wooden and artificial, and so one of the things that I'm lamenting and, and looking forward to uh finally at some point being able to get back to church being being able to get back with our church family is not feeling that sort of wooden artificial community that I think virtual, whether it be via apps like video apps or or Zoom meetings has kind of wrought on us here.
0: All right. Again, we want to celebrate Zoom. We're thankful for it. Please don't pull the plug um, if you've heard us (laughs) lamenting uh, Zoom fatigue. All right. um, We have like one minute. Is there anything related to to talking about moving ministries online where you just want to encourage people um, ministry-wise going forward?
1: Yeah, I think keep at it. As much as we just, I just talked about how I've lamented my situation. I think a lot of people may be feeling that way. And as you move ministry online, um, just understand that people's attention spans and and Zoom fatigue is real. I would just say just take take the that into a, into account. Keep maybe keep sermons shorter. Um, be more interactive just when you're doing ministry online, understand that people are much more distracted than they are when they're sitting in your pew or sitting in your Sunday school classroom, uh, and that you might need just to do a little bit more handholding in terms of keeping people's attention and, and, um, catering to a little bit, maybe shorter or more distracted attention span. So that's, that's what I would say. But I think the ways people have really adapted has been encouraging.
0: Thank you, as always, for helping us to continue to adapt. Uh, And, Chris, we really appreciate what you're doing every day at Lifeway Social. Keep it up. Um, For those of you who don't yet do so, follow Chris on Twitter, ChrisMartin17. He's a good follow. And let's be watching for the reemergence of the Social Cues podcast next week. Thanks, man. Yeah, thank you. Blessings. We'll be right back. All right, I have one uh, bit of other news to cover here in the last minute. Uh, the University of California has dropped the SAT ACT requirement, um, and in this decision, they're you know I think gonna, it's going to reshape the nation's college admissions process. So one more thing for colleges and universities and students to think about: the University of California system is the largest in the country. They have suspended the SAT and ACT testing requirements through 2024 with the plan to eliminate them altogether uh, for students by 2025. So here's the open question. How will colleges and universities evaluate students who apply for enrollment um, if they're not going to use any sort of standardized test? That's a pretty good question, don't you think? Um, I mean, they can't accept everyone, right? Right. So it's, uh, it's just more uncertainty for a class of rising seniors who are already uh, swimming in what I am describing as a world of unknowns. So let's be praying for them as a positive byproduct. Maybe this generation of young people will prove themselves to be far more resilient, even as they are creative and considering alternative paths uh, forward. Many of them. All right. So uh, thank you for joining me in this first hour. we got another hour coming up next. We're going to talk about Joe Biden and how I think he needs to watch his mouth. Mm, OK. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio.